So this year, we are going to have two robotic moon landers, commercial robotic moon landers, going to the moon. They're American-made. And this is, you know, it's a big deal. We haven't been in a long time. Why has it been so long since America has sent anything to the moon surface? Yeah, so it is entirely political, believe it or not. We proved 50 years ago that we could land humans on the moon. July 1969, I guess you're about the only person around that doesn't have TV coverage of the scene. That's alright, I don't mind a bit. The Apollo program wasn't meant to be sustainable. It was meant to beat the Soviet Union to the moon to quote unquote win the space race. And we succeeded in that mission, we being the United States. So NASA accomplished that mission. And once it accomplished landing people on the lunar surface, their mission was over. I'm Lara Forsick. I'm the owner of space consulting firm Astrolytical. My background is in astrophysics and planetary science and within planetary science specializing in moon dust. Why do you think that Russia never landed a man or a woman on the moon? The Soviets did beat the Americans sending the first person to space. Um, And so they have that record. But sending a person to low Earth orbit is completely different than sending a person all the way to the moon. And so it just might not have been cost effective for Russia to continue that one-upmanship And NASA was funding the whole Apollo program. But decades later, there is now a commercial space company boom, driving the return to the moon, not only for the U.S., but around the world. It's a shift in the way that NASA does things from how it used to do it, where NASA owned the hardware, NASA owned the mission, NASA owned everything and funded everything, to this difference that started really about a decade ago, starting with sending cargo to the International Space Station. NASA contracts that out to private company by buying services. And they still have majority control over the missions, but private companies are adding their own funds. Do you know about how many commercial companies are out there right now with lunar-related business models? Oh, it's, it's got to be in the dozens to hundreds by now if you're talking globally, because it's not just the United States who wants to return. And a lot of the European countries are also partnered with NASA with the lunar base that NASA wants to set up. Russia and China have agreed to do a lunar base of their own. And so there's several countries around the world who have already invested funds, um, some of them government funds, but also some of them private companies. Do you think that the interest in the moon went away or it was always there and it just depended on the circumstances? I think the interest in the moon has always been there. And a lot of people thought that we would still be on the moon if you look at the successes of the early Apollo program. Unfortunately, that's not how history played out. From WKMG in Orlando, I'm your host, Emily Speck. This is Space Curious. Two years ago, NASA selected several companies as part of its Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program or CLIPS for short. NASA loves it some acronyms. The objective of CLIPS is to send moon landers to the lunar surface carrying NASA experiments. Now, we're just months away from launching the first American missions to the moon since 1972. There aren't people on board this time, but the robotic missions are laying the groundwork for American astronauts to return to the moon in the next few years. About three years ago, when, when the moon program at NASA came back around again, and it seems like the whole planet kind of has moon fever now, 
and uh, now we are full pedal to the metal uh, moon company. We met Astrobotics' Peregrine Lander in the last installment of Space Curious. If you missed it, that episode is waiting for you in your Space Curious feed. This week, we're catching up with the private moon space company Intuitive Machine. My name's Tim Crane. I am the Vice President of Research and Development at Intuitive Machines and uh, also a co-founder of the company along with Cam Gaffarian and Steve Altimus, my partners. But one of the things we believed in was that a, a good design, whether it's for a human spaceflight application or an automated system like an aerial drone, that a good design should, should feel right. It should be intuitive. And so it, there's a little bit of a play on words that we feel like our designs should have an intuitive feel that they work the way they're supposed to. And then we also feel that people are intuitive machines. Well, let's talk about this lunar lander that's going to get a lot of attention this year, uh, Nova C. At the risk of sounding, sounding unsophisticated, imagining a large hot water heater. And that, that's kind of what it looks like. It's, it's tall and cylindrical. So when you look out and you see the, the lunar landers that are going, uh, a lot of them are kind of squat and flat, and they'll have multiple tanks scattered kind of in a, in a disc. Um, ours are stacked on top of each other. So the first thing that'll jump out is we're the tallest of the, the lunar landers that are going to the moon here in the next five years or so. It has six sides. Our original design, it looked kind of like a barrel. It really was cylindrical. But um, as we went through some design iterations, we realized it'd be easier to manufacture with a hexagonal structure. So it has a, um, six sides on it. It has six legs that come out to uh, stabilize when we, when we touch the ground. And the whole thing is about 13, 14 feet tall. Intuitive Machine isn't building lunar landers like you would see during the Apollo program. It is very much a 21st century piece of hardware and engineering. Basically, it has all the bells and whistles. One of these new fancy features on Nova C is the landing navigation system. We basically take images of craters when we're in orbit, and we use that to kind of do a global um, navigation solution. And then as we get closer and closer and closer, we continue to look at craters, but now those craters are also more pertinent to the landing site as well. So kind of thinking of, think about it as, as road signs where as you're driving down the interstate, you might see you know 500 miles to El Paso, but then once you get into San Antonio, now you're looking at, at street signs. And so when we're in orbit, we look at the big El Paso type craters. And then once we get in closer, we're looking at craters closer to the landing site. After the break, we'll hear how this space robot becomes a new moon resident after launching from Florida. If you haven't heard the Best Advice show yet, now is the time to check it out. So many of us have lost our precious podcast listening time now that we're not commuting to work. That's why The Best Advice Show is perfect. Each episode is super short and features a different guest offering one discreet piece of advice. I was on last year giving advice about how to properly watch a rocket launch. My big tip, watch one with a kid. Their wonder is infectious. Listen to The Best Advice Show every weekday wherever you listen to podcasts. Nova C will begin its journey to the moon after launching on a SpaceX Falcon 9 from Florida this fall. For the first mission, um, SpaceX throws us into a highly elliptical orbit and separates. And then when we come back down to the Earth, we light our own engine. And then that takes us the 400,000 kilometers to the moon. 
Next, Nova C will need to slow down and begin orbiting the moon. So we'll stay in, in lunar orbit for about 12 revs, about a day, to check out all our systems, make sure we're, we're ready for the landing. Um, then we'll do a small maneuver to lower the, uh, the orbit on one side, and when we hit that low part, we light the engine, and we have about six minutes of continuous thrust. When it's time for landing, the spacecraft will throttle down only using about 25% of its engine power, or thrust. Because we've exhausted so much of the propellant, we don't weigh as much as we did when we started. So we throttle down in order to basically match gravity for the very last 100 meters or so, and we land a nice soft touchdown. This is also where that new fancy landing navigation system comes into play. Many space landing systems are now using a responsive navigation to safely land on other worlds. This is another way the commercial industry has advanced beyond the Apollo moon landings. Now, almost everything is autonomous or can operate on its own. In Apollo, uh, it was the human eye. The, the pilot was, was the hazard avoidance system. And so um, this, is, this is exciting because lots of different uh, companies are working on the same system and we're all trying them out for the first time and excited to see, uh, see how they work. When it lands, the milestone will be a first for intuitive machines, but it's also bringing along with it payloads from NASA and other companies. It's almost like we're a, uh, a moving service that you might say, hey, I need to move this sofa from Los Angeles to New York, um, and you go and you, you take bids from a shipping company. But you're not necessarily the only thing that gets shipped. So it is a commercial mission. Our first mission is an IM mission about half of our payload is NASA payload, but then we've also sold some commercial payloads that we're bringing on as well. NASA's asking for who can give us the best deal to take this experiment or capability to the moon, and then it's up to us to also sell additional services to other customers, if we will, to make the whole mission and business case work. So that's been really exciting to go out and you know, say, hey, we, we're, we're taking the stuff to the moon for NASA. Who else wants to go, and how do we fill the holds of our ship, basically? Um, to make good commerce. NASA is sending along a few science instruments that will look at deorbit, descent, and landing, which is translation for all the phases of landing on the moon. Another instrument will focus on the dust and plumes created on the lunar surface. Why do we care so much about lunar dust and plumes? There's been a lot of research on this, and I know there's a lot of people that are really interested in this particular, yeah. particular payload. They're interested in being able to evaluate the age of different areas of the moon and, and some of that regolith will help them understand how did the moon weather and you don't think about moon weather but imagine a crater forms and then another crater gets hit someplace else on the moon all that regolith gets blown up and then falls back down into other craters almost like a rain and so craters fill up over time a little bit with other regolith so understanding how that regolith moves when we land helps them understand the age of the moon a little bit Moon dust also has implications for when humans arrive, as NASA and its partners begin building a permanent base there. We need to understand things like, um, how close can we put our assets on the moon before we need to put a, a, a blast shield, basically. So what you don't want to do is land close, land one, say, cargo module next to a habitation module, and then blow that regolith up, which are like tiny little pumice particles, and damage the first vehicle. So what kind of mitigations do we need to do as we begin to build moon habitats, moon bases, 
and understand the nature of those of those particles. And, and then when you're talking about dust and, and seals, right? We've got seals all over a spacecraft or a habitat to keep the atmosphere in and the vacuum out. Well, those, those seals don't like, you know, grit. <laughs> and so that's a, a big concern for um, our Artemis program, understanding how to do dust mitigation with the spacesuits. And there have been some really incredible designs there. Everything from little dusters that you, you, you dust each other off in the uh, airlock to uh, suits that have a suit port where you actually back the suit into the spacecraft and the back of the suit opens up like a airlock and you actually pull yourself out of the suit. So there's some, some really exciting work to be done in the spacesuit field. Another small payload going to the moon with Nova C, not on this mission, but next year, is from Nokia. Yes, like the cell phone company. And they want to do an LTE demonstration uh, at the moon. So we're going to take a rover with an LTE communication node, and it will move out and will basically demonstrate LTE communications with our lander. That's the, and that's the reaction. Everybody goes, like, cell phones at the moon? Um, but if you think about it, as the moon becomes more and more uh, visited and there's more assets at the moon, those vehicles, people, rovers, habitats, satellites, communicating with, with each other uh, will be important. And so how will we do that? Why not use something like LTE technology um, that we're using so successfully here to connect people and devices? We're going to demonstrate that we can do the same thing with Nokia at the moon. These robotic missions all play a role in returning humans to the moon for the first time in more than 50 years. It seems far off, but it's really not. Some people might wonder, why are we sending humans to the moon when robotics can do so much? We send robotics to the Mars. And Again, Laura Forsick uh, from Astrolytical. And so um, the, the great thing about robotics is that they don't need life support and food, but robots are so limited. So humans can do so much more than robots ever could. And as a lunar scientist, I would absolutely love to be able to go on the moon. We did send one geologist in the Apollo program, and he is still very active in the, the geology community, explaining why lunar science is so important and how he could see things with his own eye that robots could not see. Where do you think we would be if we had had a sustainable presence on the moon from, you know, Apollo 11 until now, if it, if we never left? Like, what do you think it would be like on the moon right now? Just kind of your dream scenario. <laughs> I don't know if anyone back 50 years ago could have predicted the success of commercial space industry right now. I don't know if anyone could have foreseen that billionaires would be pouring their billions into private companies, you know. And so I don't know if it would have been... Uh, I don't know if it would have been best if the government had handled this all for decades and and how that transition would have eased into private companies, if at all, if it had gone a different way. If it's all government running, government funded, it is at the whim of the government. And if it is a private company or, or multiple private companies that have a ecosystem, a marketplace built up, then it could be much more sustainable and also much more international because it's not dependent on uh, diplomacy as much as it's dependent on international commerce. Next time on Space Curious, we're talking about spiders in space. Also, Baby Yoda, a few dogs, and one cat. Let's see if she can get in focus. Hold on. Can you see her? She's pretty in, she's in focus, yeah. I think she's been eating well. <laughs>
The manager of Supercluster's fascinating non-human space database joins me to explain just how many creepy crawlies and cute critters have been to space. If you missed last week's Space Curious episode about another mission headed to the moon, check out Season 2, Episode 2. I've posted photos and more information about Intuitive Machine and Nova C on our new website, spacecurious.show. If you've got a question or a story idea, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at emspec or submit your idea on the homepage at spacecurious.show. This episode was produced and edited by Zach Rosen and myself. Thank you to Intuitive Machines' Tim Crane and Astrolytical founder Laura Forsick for joining us this week. Until next time, stay curious.